so we're concluding our study of First Peter, um, and we're looking at just the last few verses this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to First Peter. And we're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. First Peter 5, 12 through 14. We'll have the passage up on the screen behind me. Please follow along with me now as I read the Word of God. This is God's Word. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living. It's active. It's powerful. And it is able to divide, to reveal, to expose, and to heal. And so, Lord, this morning, I just pray that you would breathe through these words. I pray you'd breathe new life into each one of us this morning. Lord, you know where everyone is at personally. You know where their thoughts are. You know where their desires are. You know what they have. You know what they don't have. You know what they've suffered. And you know what they're going to suffer. And so this morning, Lord, I just pray that we would be open to hearing from you. Hearing what you have to say about your purpose and plan for suffering in this world. And if we have mistaken ideas that they might sound nice in the beginning until they get tested by real life. And then we find them wanting and we might even be disillusioned or disappointed and some inevitably will walk away from the faith. But Lord, help us to hear the truth this morning so that we know what it is You've said, what You've promised, and what You are willing to do in each one of our lives. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, so we're looking at 1 Peter 5, 12 through 14, and a lot of people just skip right over this. It's like, this is kind of the end, this is the credits. How many of you saw Avengers? Did anybody see the Avengers movie? Did you stay for the credits? Because I know there was like a lot of people talking about, oh, you got to stay for the credits. I'm like, not staying for the credits, you know what I mean? It's like I don't stick around for that. But other people are like, oh no, there might be like a secret scene at the end. So it's like, so that's how they're getting people to watch the credits, right? That nobody else uh, watches. Um, but a lot of times that's how people look at the end of a book of the Bible, particularly a letter in the New Testament. It's like, okay, whatever Peter or Paul or whoever said was important, they've already said that and now this is just the end, there's nothing there. Um, but one of the things you actually find out when you study the New Testament is that many times that is precisely the opposite. 
um, that many times the end of a letter is weighted heavily. And this is where we have to realize that reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. Now that's something that wasn't necessarily uh, popular uh, or interesting to people in past generations, except for perhaps professional missionaries like Dale, who studies other cultures and goes to another country, and so of course you're fascinated. Um, but nowadays, many people know people from other cultures, from other backgrounds. We're an increasingly globalized society. As a matter of fact, for me, I remember it was about 20 years ago, I took an international business class. That was the name of it, international business. And I remember 20 years ago, first night of my class of international business, the professor said, this might be the last semester I teach this class. And, and we're like, okay, well, is it, does it suck? Should I drop it right now? Like, why am I in here? And they said, no, the reason this is going to be probably the last time I teach it is because all business will be international. Simply having that class pointed to an old world where you can actually, oh, I, when I do business, I, I buy from somebody down the street, I sell to somebody down the street, I advertise with somebody down the street, uh, and, and distribute it through somebody down the street, and now it's, everything is global. And I think one of the things that many American Christians don't realize is what a cross-cultural experience the Bible really is. One of the big steps that's, of course, undertaken for us is translation. So the huge cultural gap of language of Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek has been taken by a translator. And so we can sometimes get the wrong impression that, oh, this is the same culture as me, and oh, I perfectly understand all this. And one of the ways we recognize that our way of doing things, it, it can be wrong, but it's not necessarily wrong, it's just different, and that's how we write letters or how we write essays. And I know I was always taught that you state your thesis at the beginning. Am I right? That's when you do it. If you turned in an essay where your thesis is in the last sentence, I would be marked wrong. That's wrong. It's not just, oh, that's an interesting creative twist, Mike. No, it's wrong. Your thesis needs to be in the, in the beginning, in the first paragraph, preferably in the first three sentences or so. That's not what we often have in the New Testament. If you remember, when we talked through the Gospel of John, I pointed this out. You don't get John's thesis for the entire Gospel until chapter 20, where he says, these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you may have life in His name. He says it at the end. And we actually have the same thing right here in 1 Peter. He gives us his thesis here. If you look real quick, we're going to break the whole passage down, but look real quick at verse 12. He says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. He's stating his purpose. He's summarizing the entire letter. I wrote to you briefly these five chapters. Doing what? What was the purpose? What was I doing this whole time? All this conversation about courage under fire, going through suffering, being the renewed Israel in the Messiah, that God is made, you are the temple now. Living stones that God is building up and bringing fruit for Himself. Why was He saying all of that? He tells us here at the very end. I was exhorting you. I was testifying to you 
that this is the true grace of God. And so I just want to highlight that this is not some, oh, we have to cover it because it's Scripture technically, but it's not important. No, this is his thesis statement. And so I want to unpack this important couple of verses that conclude his letter. Let's look at the very beginning. It says, By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him. Now, scholars debate what that word, that preposition in our English, it's by. In Greek, it's dia. And they debate, does this mean he wrote it? Like Peter was dictating it or telling him what to say and he wrote it. We do have evidence of that. Romans chapter 16, you're reading Paul's letter, but then all of a sudden in Romans 16, I believe it's verse 22, up pops Tertius. And he says, I, Tertius, write this letter. So it's from Paul, and again, this is standard procedure. It was laborious to write, it was time-consuming, not everyone, I mean, people, they could speak the language and speak it intelligently, but that didn't mean they wrote well. Most people did not write well. So they would often employ what they call an amanuensis, and they were professional, and they would write down the letter. So up pops Tertius in Romans 16. So some people ask, was that what's going on here with Silvanus? Is Silvanus the amanuensis? Is he writing it so it's his style, which might account for the Greek. Some people think, oh, it couldn't have been Peter. I don't buy into that presupposition. But, but perhaps he is an amanuensis. Most scholars recognize that's probably not what this means here. The exact wording fits the idea of what we see in Acts 15, which is the idea of the letter being carried or delivered. So he's not necessarily the one who wrote it. I don't think he is. He's the one who delivered it. Now, why is that important? Well, notice what he says here. He says, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I count him, I regard him this way. Now, why does he need to say that? The reason he needs to say it is because this is standard accreditation for the bearer of a letter. Standard accreditation. It's important you know the one who bears the letter. Now, why is that? When a letter would be carried, the one carrying it was also considered to be an authorized interpreter of the letter. Quite naturally, when someone like Silvanus would deliver Peter's letter to the church, he travels, he's, he's walking, he's riding on horse, whatever it is, and he gets there and he delivers. Hey, I've got news from Peter, everyone. Gather around. And they would read from the book of Psalms like we did this morning. And then they would interpret the book of Psalms through Jesus the Messiah, the one in whom they believe fulfills the promises not only to Moses, to Abraham, but also to Adam and Eve back in the garden, as David pointed out last week. So when Silvanus comes, naturally they're going to ask, Silvanus, how's Peter doing? What's going on? Hey, when Peter said that in chapter 3, did he mean this or did he mean that? It was important to know that the one bearing the letter was faithful. It's sort of like my job. My job is not to write a new letter to you. I don't write Scripture. But I bear the letters of Scripture. I bear the words, the meaning, the truth, and interpret them. And I want to ask you this morning, are you a faithful bearer 
of God's truth. You've probably heard the saying, and I think it's probably more true in American history than ever before. You may be the only Bible someone will ever read. Are you a faithful bearer of the word that you bring? You may have heard another statement. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Are you a faithful brother or sister? Do you so faithfully live your life that when the Word of God is given, when? Might not be given right away as it probably was when Sylvanus delivered it. You may be in business with people for many, many years before you are given an opportunity to speak God's Word to somebody. The question in that moment certainly will be, are you a faithful interpreter? Are you a faithful messenger that brings these words? That is what Paul is able to say of Silvanus. His job was not to write the word. His job was not to be Paul. It wasn't to be an apostle. But it was his job to be faithful. Are you being faithful with what God has given you? Can Jesus say of us, I consider Mike to be faithful? I consider Joe to be faithful. I consider Steve to be faithful. Can Jesus say that of us? And make no mistake, we are all living letters. We're living letters. Paul himself said this, that you are my epistles. You are. Known and read by all men. He said, you're my letters of accreditation. It's not enough to get out my resume and say, well, I went to school here and, and I work for, you know, here, whatever. He says, no, it's you. It's changed lives. It's people bearing witness to the fact that I loved them in Jesus' place. That I served. That I humbled myself. That I did not repay evil for evil. I didn't tell lies about people. I didn't backstab them when that's what everyone else does to climb the ladder. I refused. When people were engaging in sinful behavior that I knew was wrong, but I knew I would get ostracized if I did not participate, I stayed faithful. I pray it would be as true of us as it was of Sylvanus, that we too would be counted faithful. Peter then says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this, this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Now, this is interesting for several reasons. I spent a lot of time right here. This is kind of the meat, the heart of the message this morning. What does he mean by this? What's this? <laughs> That's like the million-dollar question in this passage. This. Tautain. What is this? He doesn't say here specifically. 
people debate, well, maybe this, this is the grace. Uh, no, the true is the adjective of grace. What, what is this? Just, just this is uh, that Sylvanus is a faithful brother? Is that the grace? The true grace? What Peter is referring to is the content of his entire letter. So again, he's coming to a conclusion. He's giving us his thesis. This is what I've been doing this whole time. And he's referring back. Everything I told you is the grace of God. So again, what is that? What have we been discussing week in and week out through 1 Peter? Well, I've tried to make it easy to remember through the name of the series. Courage under fire. What he's been writing about is faithful endurance while undergoing unjust suffering. That's what he's talking about. So suffering is a major theme of 1 Peter. In particular, unjust suffering, unwarranted. You didn't do anything wrong. Even righteous suffering, which is even more than unjust. Because righteous suffering is suffering brought on because of doing good. Somebody actually wants to hurt you, make your life worse, tarnish your reputation because you want to do good. That's righteous suffering. So that's the context. And he says, this is the true grace. Now, I think this is a very pertinent point to make, not just to you in this room, but to American Christianity more broadly. Because I don't think they get that this is the true grace of God. The fact that he modifies grace, and this stands out, it's rare. He doesn't just say the grace of God. Manifold grace of God. Glorious grace of God. True. What's the opposite of true? False. What's false grace then? Well, I think false grace, obviously, is just any conception of grace, and it's a common word used in Christianity, but many times people don't know what it means. And there's probably a lot of mistaken notions, and that can vary over time. But I think there's a very key way in which grace is wrongly construed and is therefore false. And that's the idea, and I see it a lot in American Christianity, and that is the idea that God's grace is the grace that gets you out of suffering. That's what grace is. Grace comes in, it's your suffering, for whatever reason, don't have to get into the details of why or what kind, but that's just where you are, you're suffering. Maybe physically, maybe you're sick. Some of you, your relationships are estranged. Some of you, you are having a midlife crisis. You feel like a failure. You don't know what you've done with your life. Other people have. You don't feel significant. So you're wrestling. That's a suffering. All kinds of suffering. And one of the ways grace gets sort of communicated to people is that God's grace will get you out of that. Just come to Jesus now and he will get you out of the suffering. As a matter of fact, I've heard this many times in evangelistic contexts. I've been there when an evangelist would give a message, basic message that's true, 
there is a God. He made everything, including you. That God designed you to function a certain way. Sin is refusal to function that way. You're going to just do things the way you want. As David pointed out last week, we're going to define good and evil for ourselves, even if it's wrong, even if it's incorrect. We're just going to do it anyway. And you probably know this to some extent because you see what some of your actions have done to yourself and to others. You might not use a, such a religiously charged word like sin, but you recognize there's things you've done that have hurt people. There's things you've done that have hurt yourself. There's things people have done to you that hurt you. And you take those things seriously. And so when an evangelist says, well, that's sin, and certainly you probably wouldn't be there listening to the evangelist if you weren't suffering. Probably. How many of you came to Jesus that professed to have come to Jesus because of some kind of suffering? Raise your hand. Very, very common. I would say that's most people. Not all, but most people. And so one of the ways, and, and for me, honestly, um, you know, I, I think I nitpick sometimes too much. I'm trying to get better about this to be more gracious to people. But, you know, sometimes I feel like when they say things like, oh, we'll just come forward. Jesus will take care of all your problems. You'll, you'll get out of that. This person will come back to you. They won't break your heart anymore. And this will work out. And this will work out. And I'm like, on one hand, I'm like, that's just pure incompetence. That, that's one thing I think. Like, you have no business doing that. The other is maybe it's sort of a pragmatic approach. Like, yeah, I know it's a little bit of bad theology, but the ends justifies the means. If they come forward and, and say the magic words, then that makes it all fine. But one of the things I've noticed over the course of my life and being in the church and working in the church is that I've seen a lot of professing Christians walk away from the faith they claimed to have received and to have partnered with they walk away from it and so i want to figure out well why is that happening what's what's going on and one of the key reasons is that people they get married so to speak right we all get married for certain reasons then you get married and then after a while you realize marriage is not exactly what you thought it was going to be and you deal with that i think a relationship with jesus is similar you get married because of certain things thinking things will be a certain way and then eventually they're not. So what do you do about that? And what's going on? And for many people, when they come to Jesus, they, they did so because they were in a state of suffering of some kind. And they were told, if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. And saved means you will get out of that suffering. Now, obviously, if you want to get people up out of their seats and moving forward, that's pretty effective, is it not? If you want to get out, if you know you're going through a divorce, you want your spouse back, if your you know, kid is hooked on drugs and you've spent $50,000 getting him off and he just won't or you know, what, you, you've got cancer, whatever it is. If someone says, hey, Jesus can save you right now, a lot of people are going to get up and come forward. And I'm not even saying God can't use that. God's sovereign. Even over our foolishness, God is sovereign. Praise God. But is that 
good theology? Are we inherently offering people a false grace that leads to abandonment of the faith? And I think if you tell people that suffering is not a part of the Christian life, that Jesus exists to get you out of it, then when they go through suffering, they encounter it either as God being unfaithful. Well, He told me if I raised my hand, this wouldn't happen. He told me. Promised me. They become bewildered. They become disillusioned. And they say, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not going to follow Him. And what Peter's been saying this entire time is, look, when you're in suffering and you're tempted to say to yourself, well, God's grace can only exist outside of this suffering. God's grace is that which gets me out of it. If you start thinking that way, and it's very natural to do so, it's not that God can't do that. It's not that God won't do that per se. Maybe He will, maybe He won't. It's that you're missing that grace in the suffering is the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God, Peter said. The true grace of God is not getting out of it all the time. There's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to get out of suffering. If you can, and you don't have to sin to do it, by all means, do it. Suffering by itself is not some noble thing. Hey, yay, I'm a great person because I'm suffering. With no regard to my moral choices, my choices or the causes or anything else. No. The true grace of God is that in Jesus Christ, God is reversing the curse of sin. Now, most people do know this, of course, that Christianity teaches when you die, you will live again, right? I think everybody knows that. Even if you completely reject Christianity, you probably know about this thing called the resurrection. Kind of a big deal. Jesus didn't rise again, there's no Christianity. It's not just Jesus was a great moral teacher. The apostles believed he rose again from the dead. And that's actually why they believed he was who he said he was. Because even they had a hard time believing who he said he was until after he died and rose again. So many people know about that. But far fewer know what else God is doing in the gospel. Genesis 3 recorded that when sin happened, not only did God say that there would be death, there's relational death, that was first, right? Relational death. And for some people, that is worse than physical death. Relational death. But there is also that which is in between. Suffering. There's suffering. The ground was cursed. Childbearing and rearing is worse. It's suffering. So one of the things Jesus is doing, and this is gospel, This is good news. Is that Jesus is not just going to reverse death whenever that is for us. It's that right now, in and through Jesus, He is reversing the curse of suffering itself 
so that the thing meant to banish you from God's presence becomes the very thing that brings you into God's presence. Suffering actually becomes the tool in the hand of the potter. You'll know this imagery from the prophet Jeremiah. That God is the potter and God's people are the clay. And He's molding them and fashioning them. And when they're not becoming who they are, the potter reserves the right to break the vessel in order that the vessel might be remade for its intended purpose. And that's actually how God uses suffering. Suffering, I I like to think of it as a fiery furnace. It's a fiery furnace. And obviously, if you've ever put your hand in a fire accidentally, some very serious pain. But what else happens in fire is things like metal that were not pliable become pliable. And I think the same is true of us. We're stubborn. The Old Testament, God often calls His people stubborn. You're stubborn. You're stiff-necked. We are stubborn and stiff-necked. Human beings. It's not just Israel. It's everybody. It was Adam and Eve. They were stubborn. We're not going to listen to what you said. You said don't do this because it's not good for you. And we said, well, sure looks good. We're going to do it anyway. Not going to listen to you. We're not pliable. We want to be who we are. And we don't like things that change us, that force us to change and give things up and, and you know, give up things that we we find pleasurable or comfortable or secure or whatever. We don't like that. But God says, I love you. And because I love you, I am completely committed to your holiness. I am more committed, and this is hard to hear. God is more committed to your holiness than your happiness. I think it's exactly the opposite for us. We are far more each committed to our happiness than our holiness. If we have happiness in one hand and holiness in the other, and one's pulling, what's the one you're going to really squeeze for? Is it, oh, holiness. I'll give up happiness and pleasure and joy and easygoing and thrilling times. Oh, because I just want to be morally upright and just know that God gets glory. Or do we go, heck no. Like, I'm not, you know, whatever, God, you can get your own glory. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I want to hold on to my security. I want to hold on to happiness. I want to hold on what makes me feel good. I want to hold on to that which makes sure things that don't make me feel good stay as far away from me as possible. That's what we reach for. We are absolutely preoccupied with happiness. Our nation founded on that idea, the pursuit of happiness. And it's ironic that people think that's a Christian ideal. It really isn't. The pursuit of happiness in the hands of those who don't pursue holiness is chaos. I don't know if you like the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. I don't know, you know, if you read Judges, 
right? Some people don't like judges. Judges is fascinating. But you get this cycle, right? And it's preparing the way for a king. They, they need somebody who consolidates all their hopes, their dreams, the power, and, and that's their succession. There's a plan. You know where things are going, not just this sort of sporadic, you never know. Is there going to be a judge? Who's it going to be? Is it Deborah? Is it Barak? Is it, you know, is it Samson? Who's it going to be? We don't, we don't like not knowing who it's going to be. So judges is preparing the way for a king. And over and over, there's a refrain in judges at the end of each cycle of judgment. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Did you know there were Americans back in the book of Judges? <laughs> the pursuit of happiness. We are each pursuing ourselves what makes us happy. And again, that's a narrative that sells, doesn't it? Oh, that sells. Yeah, you sell me happiness, I'm buying. That's all you have to tell people. You can't sell holiness because nobody wants it. There's not a good market for that. Happiness, oh, that, that's an easy one. But if we're actually going to get into a relationship with God, then we have to start to see that God is not like us. We are made in God's image. God is not made in ours. Doesn't go both ways. God is not made in our image. We try to do that. For example, here, this is an example of idolatry. Idols are idols, whether mental or metal. I believe in a God who just wants me to be happy. That's what I believe in. I want to believe in a God who just wants me to be happy. That's an idol. It doesn't have a basis in biblical reality. When God discloses Himself, and to have any real relationship, the two parties must disclose themselves to one another or you don't have a relationship. You have to. But the truth is deep down, we want the illusion of a relationship without having the real thing. This is the big problem with relationships and sex and everything else in our culture. People want the illusion of love without actually having to be responsible for it. Because it implies hard work and sacrifice. And it can be very unflattering and humbling. And people don't want that because what they want is happiness. So if we're going to be in a relationship with God, when God discloses Himself... We need to at least apply basic rules of communication, which is be polite and let the other person tell you who they think they are. Don't just be like, well, I think you're this and I think you're that. I think this is really, this is what's going on in political rhetoric, by the way. Nobody really wants to know what the other person's really, they want to say what I want you to look like. I believe you are this. I believe this is why you are saying this. No real conversations taking place, at least publicly. If we're going to be in a relationship with God, God has to disclose Himself. And when he, when he does so in Scripture, we find out He is more committed to our holiness than our happiness. C.S. Lewis had a great way of putting words. And in his book, The Problem of Pain, he said, you know what the problem is? The Bible speaks of God as our heavenly Father, right? That's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
But what we want is a heavenly grandfather. A father's job is to put up the boundaries, to discipline, to say this is where you can go and, and no further. We all know this now. I'm a grandpa now, so i got to be careful with the hypocrisy because it's, man, I can already tell it's very easy. But one of the things grandpas are known for is absolutely spoiling the grandkids. And one of the reasons is, it's, in a sense, this is kind of true, although it does depend on culture. In American culture, we kind of like, Grandpa, you're not allowed to raise the kids. <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you don't tell them anything. And they're like, good, I don't want to. I already did that, been there, done that. I just want to spoil them. Like, I had to deal with all the drama of laying down the rules and you breaking curfew and you doing this and all that. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm just going to give you candy till you vomit. <laughs> like, that's what grandparents do. And we've actually had to talk to grandparents or they're just literally, you know, our kids, they have to have real food, we call it, right? They want candy. That's what they want, happiness. But we want holiness, good food, healthy food, organic food, stuff with protein and essential amino acids and all that. But they don't want that, but that's what we say. And then we go, all right, now if you eat real food, this is good for your body, then you can have a treat, and it's got to be small. You can't have a ton of sugar because that's not good for you. Grandpa's house, the whole meal is candy. There's no healthy food. There's no discussion of healthy food. It's, all right, well, we got king-size Snickers, or we can go healthy and do Milky Way Dark. <laughs> which, which do you want to do? I mean, there's healthy, and there's... And, and, like, that's how it is. I think Lewis is right. I think most of us, we don't want a heavenly father. We say we do, but we really don't. We want a heavenly grandfather who's more committed to our happiness than our holiness. But what Peter is saying through this whole letter of explaining, look, brothers and sisters, I love you, God loves you, and that is not incompatible or contradictory with the fact you are right now suffering. Because a lot of people believe that it is. If God loved me, he wouldn't let this happen. If God loved me, I wouldn't have this problem. If God loved me, this would have worked out. What does that presuppose? It presupposes a belief that suffering and God's love are not compatible, doesn't it? That's a huge presupposition. And it's biblically absolutely wrong. It's antithetical to who God is and what a relationship with Him entails. Because God is so committed to your holiness... He will allow suffering of various kinds to come in because it's in suffering we loosen our grip on things that are not God. That's a fact. When you're suffering something, whatever it is, whatever is causing you suffering, you realize in that moment, well, that can't be God. You might have thought it was, right? You can have a relationship. You're head over heels in love. It feels like God. No wonder people deify what Lewis also called eros, erotic love. We deify it. Romantic love. The thrill of it. The butterflies. Not long-term stable commitment in a marriage. Thrills. Butterflies. We're, we're chasing that thrill. But what happens when, when you've deified that and you've made that thrill and, and that passion and that lust your God and then the person cheats on you? 
not only in that moment do you realize it was not a god, it has become a demon. That's how that feels. You realize, how could I have been so wrong? This thing that seems so right that it couldn't be wrong has become the opposite of good in my life. That can't be God. So in the moment of suffering, as, as bad as the experience of itself, it can, if we ask the right questions, it becomes the true grace of God in our lives. Because it's then I can see, well, then this wasn't what I thought it was. But the big mistake is we don't look to God then in that moment. So you've been put into the fiery furnace because you're stubborn and stick-necked and you're not pliable, but now you're in the furnace, so now you're pliable, but then you don't want God to reshape you. You begin looking for someone or something else again. And what you and I are doing when we do that is we're repeating the cycle of judges all over again. Rather than finally getting it, that the suffering is meant to make us look back to God and to remember that He is absolutely committed to our holiness. As I've said before, I believe if you aim at holiness, you can get happiness thrown in. But if you aim at happiness, you will neither be happy nor holy. We have to make holiness number one. So we've been sold, I think, many of us, false grace. God can only work if I'm not in this situation. But what I want to tell you this morning is God's grace for you is not out there somewhere. It's right where you are. The true grace is here. It's right here. It's where you are. I was thinking about this just over the last week or so, just being very, very sick, you know, and not being able to eat, like literally trying to make myself get three, four hundred calories a day just so that my headaches wouldn't be so bad that I, I just couldn't see straight. Like, it was really, really bad. And even though I know, okay, this is just a virus, I'll get over it eventually, but like, when you're physically weak, you, have you noticed that just emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, you kind of like go in a lot of directions? And I remember just being like so tired, so exhausted, so physically sick, so malnourished that, I mean, I just started thinking about like my life as a whole, you, you know, and like, oh, and I, I failed at this and I failed at that. And, you know, I just like, w like, why am I thinking of, of all this stuff? And, and I started thinking about my own mortality. Like each little illness is a little reminder I'm going to die one day. It's true. It's a fact. It's not morbid. It's called reality. If we're in denial of that, I mean, right? Like, what, what can we talk about? That's death and taxes, right? Those are the two certain things we know of. But I started thinking about it, and, and not getting morbid, like where I'm all scared of death, but rather bring my life into focus. That's what actually the, the fear of death ought to do. It's not so that I'm so paranoid about death that I just live my life trying to avoid it. No, it's so that I live the life I'm meant to live. It's to remind myself that I don't have all the time in the world. That I have to make each day count. Each day matters. And you know what? In the big scheme of things, one day all this will be over. The suffering, whether it's this or something else, one day it'll all be over. What I want to be able to say is, what did I do with what, the, what I was given? 
And that includes suffering. What did I do with my suffering? Did I allow it to become something that drove me away from God? Because the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. Some people respond to suffering by pushing away from God. Yet others, suffering is what brings them to God. And the true grace of God is that in and through suffering, God is bringing us to Himself. That we are actually getting nearer to Christ. Not despite, but because of the suffering, we are being drawn to Him. And so Peter's message is that this is the good news. The good news is, yes, you're suffering, but in Jesus, your suffering is going to be used to cause you to become the person God has always wanted you to be. He's going to use it. It is a vital tool in the hand of the potter. He's making you. The breaking of the potter is always for making. And we have to remember that when we're being broken. Because when we're being broken, it's a matter of trust. If you don't trust God, then when you're being broken, you, you think it's, this is all going to work out for the worst. You think it's, well, you know, God doesn't love me. That's what you say. Oh, you must not love me. Again, reinforced by false grace that's been sold. But if we recognize, look, if I'm in a relationship with God through Jesus, then I'm promised that this present suffering is actually a tool of grace in my life to cause me to become who God wants me to be. And I need to remember that God's not betraying me in any sense. But rather, my main problem is I am not as committed to God's values as He is. The main problem is I am more committed to my happiness than my holiness. The main problem is I'm forgetting God is so committed to holiness. He's willing to walk me through seasons of suffering that I might be holy even as He is holy. That is the true grace of God. And then he says, in which you stand. There's a textual variation which makes it a command. This is the true grace of God in which you must stand. Again, for me, pastorally and teaching, this is an easy dilemma to solve. It's most certainly both. If you have any kind of standing before God, this is it. It's in this grace. There is no other grace. The grace of Jesus Christ is the grace of the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. He died on the cross. Suffering is on the road to glory. You don't get glory without the suffering. And guess who will offer you glory without suffering? In the Bible. His name's Satan. Ha-Satan, the adversary. This is one of the key temptations Satan offered to Jesus in the wilderness. Satan's no dummy. 
he knows that God is more committed to holiness than happiness, and he tries to sell Jesus on it. And that temptation's probably been working a long time for many of us. Didn't work with Jesus. When Satan took Jesus up above and showed him the kingdoms of the world, he knew what he was doing. This is why Jesus is here. To reclaim the world that was lost in Adam. And he says, I'll give you all this if you fall down and worship me. And what's not said, but implied, of course, is, and you can have all this. You can have what you came for without the cross, without the suffering. I'll give you glory without suffering. The true gospel is that there is no glory, no true glory, no true grace, but through suffering. That this is the road that leads to eternal life. This is what Jesus said. Narrow is the way. Difficult is the road that leads to life. And few there are that find it. But wide is the way and broad, easy is the path that leads to death. Many there are who travel by it. And no wonder. Because one way is holiness and the other is happiness. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to understand that suffering is a part of the Christian life. It's not weird. No strange thing happened to you. Should not be unfamiliar. You shouldn't lack understanding. You should know how to look at it. You shouldn't be ignorant. You should be able to look at your suffering and say, even if I don't know exactly, okay, well, why this person? Why this time? Why this exact way? Is it going to be a year? Is it going to be two years? Okay, you're not going to know that per se. But what you can know is that whatever's going on in here, I am 100% certain this is the true grace of God for me. That I'm becoming who God wants me to be and I can, I can rejoice in my trials. If I have God's values, which I want to be who God wants me to be more than just I want to have a good time, then I know that this is an indispensable tool in the hand of the Lord. And if you have standing, it's, it's right here. And the command goes along with it. And it is. Make no mistake about it. It is the true grace in which you must stand. You can't stand in any other kind of grace. It'll fail you because it's false. It's the true grace of God. The grace to experience God's reversal of the curse of suffering so that banishment from God's presence becomes the very means of drawing us to it. Peter goes on to say in verse 13, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. It's interesting that Peter, we, we're pretty sure he's writing from Rome. Nobody lives in Babylon at the time of this writing. It's ruins. Nobody lives there. Why is he saying Babylon? Babylon is a code word, or really, I don't even want to say code word. It's a theological word. It has theological, spiritual significance. And he says, elect together with you. He's following up on this theme of the true grace of God which is with us in suffering. What did Babylon represent? It represented exile. It represented suffering. It represented the loss of, of your dreams, effectively, right? We've lost Jerusalem. 
The walls have been broken. Our people have been killed. Our national identity is being threatened. They're renaming us. They're giving us pagan names. They're trying to force us to violate our laws and, and our rules. It, it, that's what Babylon is. It represents suffering. And in the very same line, he says, chosen, elect, with you. And again, it's that, it's that tension of you can be in a situation of suffering and know that you're chosen. There's a purpose in it for you. God spoke through Jeremiah before the exile, and he said, look, this is going to happen. I'm warning you in advance. It's going to happen. But know this. When you go, and you lose everything, and you're tempted to believe that you've lost me, you can know that I am committed to you forever. And that is the same thing for us. We may be living in a Babylon where we're reminded of what we've lost. And we're tempted to believe that suffering has the last word, but we're reminded that we are chosen together with the people of God. Chosen together with Peter, with Silvanus, with the church that first received this letter, and most importantly, chosen together with Jesus, the man of sorrow, the man of suffering who died for us. We are chosen in Him, and because He defeated sin and death, we can know that we will also share in His glory. Verse 14 says, Greet one another with a kiss of love. This kiss of love was reserved for family and close friends. You wouldn't go just around kissing everyone. This is what made the kiss that Judas gave Jesus so hurtful. Absolutely betraying the deepest of trust. Yes, Jesus knows even what that feels like. But Peter says it here. Why? Because in Jesus, we are a family doesn't mean we physically have to kiss one another. The point is that you have a new family. And it's a family that's bound together by belief that in our suffering we can experience the true grace of God. Because people on the outside will not interpret your suffering the same way. They will say, oh, what a wonderful God he or she serves. Look how they, their God has abandoned them. Or, oh, maybe their God can't hear. Or maybe their God can't say. They're not going to interpret outside the family of God. They will not interpret your suffering the same way. That is why it's so important to be together with the people of God. And last of all, he says, Shalom to all you who are in the Messiah, Jesus. Notice he says, Peace or shalom to all of you who, it's qualified, who are in Messiah Jesus. Peace is not found out there. It's not even just found in here as it might be in other religious traditions. They find some sense of detachment. Rather, in the Christian worldview, peace comes through attachment to Jesus Christ. It's in relationship with Him that we experience the shalom of God, and it's a shalom that transcends all understanding. It's a shalom that it transcends just what's going on in your family, what's going on with your health, what's going on with your job. It's a shalom that you have facing the living God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we just thank You so much that You are a good Father. And like a good Father, You are absolutely committed to us becoming the sons and daughters You've created us to be. And Lord, I don't think it matters how old we are, how long we've lived on this earth. There's parts of us that still, like children, simply don't know what's best for us. And maybe right now we're tempted to believe that what we're going through is not best for us. We think we know better. We think we shouldn't be in this because it's not good and can't bring forth anything good and we don't understand why and if you loved us, you wouldn't do this. But Lord, this morning, if we can see that You have already affirmed and validated Your love in Jesus, that having not even spared Your one and only, one-of-a-kind Son, Jesus, how much more will You work all things together for our good? So Lord, this morning it's my prayer that we would be able to look at our lives right now, whether that's a season of intense suffering and pain, Maybe it's not quite so severe, but maybe it's just one of aimlessness. We don't know why we're here. It doesn't seem like it has any purpose. Help us to see that this is the true grace of God. Maybe some of us are in a place where we're happy. We've been pursuing happiness. And we think that's the true grace of God, but we're in for a rude awakening. There'll be a time coming Rest assured that whatever we're trusting in that's not you is going to fail us. It's going to let us down. And we're going to be devastated because we've hinged our identity and our hopes on it. So even for those, Lord, who maybe perhaps yet don't see a need for the true grace of God, I pray by the Spirit, by your power, you would help them to see that the true grace of God is in Jesus. It's in your commitment to our holiness, becoming who we're meant to be, And I just pray you would lead us to Jesus, to greater faith. Lead us to lay aside those things that hold us down, that keep us back. Help us put down the opinions of others that do not aid in our walk with you. Maybe we listen to them because they're close to us, but the truth is if we listen to them, we can't listen to you. So help us to set those things aside and to hear your voice this morning and respond to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.